And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Here's the question that we're going to start with. What do you think it feels like to be part of church growth? What do you think it feels like to be part of the growth of God's church? What are you expecting for the road ahead? Walk in the park? A marathon? Sometimes Christians talk about that. Or perhaps a steep climb up a mountain? I think the longest walk I've ever been on was up to the top of Scarfell Pike in the Lake District. It's England's tallest mountain, in case you've never heard of it. And this walker's companion uh, describes it as an uh, irresistible magnet drawing even the most indifferent fellwalker to its summit. It talks about how popular it is. Uh, it says that it, is, uh, it incorporates a number of subsidiary peaks and brings you after a long day's walk back to the exhilarating spectacle of Taylorgill Force. It makes it sound like a very nice kind of walk, but a mountain climb. Uh, maybe you think that is what it's going to be like to be part of God's church. Not a walk in the park, uh, rather a long day's walk, but an irresistible magnet uh, to the summit, incorporating exhilarating spectacles. Isn't that much of the picture that we've had in Acts? As most of us know, this book of Acts charts the history of God's church after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's painted for us this steady advance of God's kingdom. And new frontiers have been broken down as we've worked our way around a corner of the Mediterranean over the last few weeks. The church has been undeniably, well, at least popular as more and more people have been added to the church. A long day's walk, sure but incorporating exhilarating spectacles along the way. And after last week, I wonder if we might be even more inclined to expect that sort of exciting journey. Uh, last week, we had a big question. Is there small print in the gospel? And we had a clear answer. No, we are saved by faith alone. The clear word from the apostles last week and from the prophets was that God is building an international kingdom. And so neither Gentiles nor Jews should be troubled. They're all saved by turning to Jesus alone. Luke abbreviated a lot of the discussion, but in the end, it was a very clear verdict. The course was plain. The journey of gospel advance to the nations was once more set before them. 
And so at the end of the last week, we saw Paul and his companions go out and deliver this verdict to all the uh, churches in the area with the result that they were encouraged and strengthened. This week continues to follow the outcome of that council decision. Look at 16 verse 4. Chapter 16 verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. In other words, we're continuing to see this council decision go out. But if we think that it's straightforward, if we think this clear decision in Jerusalem is going to produce a very straightforward path, well, we're deeply mistaken. Our author, Luke, is a realist. He's seen the ups and downs of real-life ministry. Eventually, when we come back to Acts, we'll see him involved in the narrative. But more than that, the divine author, God, whose word we're reading, wants us to understand the real world. And if we're to survive any time in the church, if we're going to stick with God's project, we need to understand church growth and what it really feels like. Which takes us to the first point on the handout there. Now, point one, the growth of the church is messy. It's messy. I think we would have seen that in the reading. In a sense, both of these two episodes end up with blood on the floor. Uh, but for a start, we get a difference of opinion. Look at verse 36. And after some, uh, 15 verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. As I said, we're following from the outcome of the Jerusalem council. It's warm embrace of the Gentile believers. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to go back to the Gentile churches that they had established back in Acts 13 and 14. Now they have planted these churches. They want to check that they're okay. But they've got a difference of opinion over what to do about one of their traveling companions from that first journey this guy called John or Mark, or John Mark, as I'm going to call him. Uh, John Mark had joined them in that journey. You can see a sketch uh, just there on the facing page of the handouts. And back in chapter 13, when they'd made their first leg to Cyprus, John Mark had been part of their team. But when they got to Pamphylia, they circled up, John Mark headed back to Jerusalem. We actually did read that in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, but I'm guessing that most of us just kind of read through it and ignored it. And yet now it's an issue that divides Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas decided it was basically a non-event. Maybe because, as we learn elsewhere in Colossians, that Mark was his cousin, and so he was inclined to be a bit more generous towards him. Or maybe because, as we might know from earlier in Acts, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He's just sort of an encouraging sort of character. Maybe he's inclined to be more forgiving. But for Paul, it was a big deal. Mark had turned back, and verse 38 says, not gone with them to the work. I wonder, is there a sense there that Mark had a particular unease about the work, this work of going out to the Gentiles? He was fine when he was in Cyprus, the home of his cousin Barnabas, but when they got to truly fresh soil, when they got to Pamphylia, well, then he was uneasy and headed back to the Jewish capital. 
We don't know for sure. But as Paul and Barnabas head back to the churches to deliver the verdict of Jerusalem, to tell them, you Gentiles don't need to become Jews. When they're going back to try and say to the Gentiles, don't be troubled, maybe you can see why Paul is a little bit nervous about taking this guy, Mark, who wasn't so committed to that project. Mark, who ran back to the Jews rather than continuing in the work. There's Paul and Barnabas. There's the disagreement. Now, who do you think was right? Here's the question I've been battling with in my thinking. Who was right in that decision? And the reason I've been battling over it is because Luke doesn't come down hard on one side or the other, does he? Maybe Paul is given the better write-up. Verse 40 says he was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. But some commentaries that I've read have suggested that commendation was for both Paul and Barnabas. Actually, we know from later on in the Bible, Mark was a good guy. So by the time Paul wrote Colossians, he describes Mark as a co-worker with him. By the time he writes to Timothy, he says that Mark is very useful to me for ministry. And that was definitely later, it was just before Paul died. In fact, Peter the Apostle describes Mark as my son. But Luke very deliberately doesn't want to come down on one side or the other here. He's not talking about a matter where there was a clear right and a clear wrong. This isn't something where you can open the Bible and see a clear answer and work out the route to go. Whether Mark should go or not was basically a matter of opinion. And Luke is telling us that sometimes there will be those matters of opinion. There'll be conflict and it'll be messy. Even when the Jerusalem Council have passed their clear verdict, even when there's a clear route forward, a clear answer, the Gentiles should be included, even when there is a right and a wrong answer, yes, the Gentiles are in, no, you shouldn't make them get circumcised, within that right answer, within the clear path that they are to take in obedience to the Lord Jesus, there will be differences of opinion, conflict, Barnabas heads back to his home country of Cyprus, and Paul picks up a new partner, a guy called Silas, who we met last week, and he heads off in another direction. There's damage to their relationship. It's messy. And it's not just messy when it comes to a difference of opinion. It's also messy because of differences of, what I've said, differences of expression. I'll try and explain that in a second. Just look again at chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, given how much chat we had about circumcision last week, some of you will be thinking, Tim, you've got a, really, like a real obsession with this issue of circumcision. Uh, maybe you're feeling a bit uncomfortable about talking about it again. If you are, let me just tell you, no one is more uncomfortable than me about talking about the circumcision of a guy called Tim. <laughs> but did you notice what is most weird about it? That this comes straight after the very chapter which told us circumcision wasn't needed. I just flick over the page to chapter 15, verse 11.
Chapter 15, verse 11, Peter, the apostle, a Jewish guy, says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we, Jewish people, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Even the Jews don't need to keep the law. They don't need to be circumcised. That's why Paul is able to say elsewhere that he's not under the law, even though he's a Jewish person. Timothy does not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So why does Paul get the knife out? Look again at verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He doesn't circumcise him because Timothy needs it to be saved. He does it for the sake of reaching the Jews. Since Timothy had a Jewish mother, he should have been circumcised at birth. We don't know exactly why he wasn't. Maybe his dad had resisted. No son of mine. I don't know, something like that. But whatever the reason was, it wasn't a gospel reason that had held him back. Maybe some kind of resistance to Jewish custom. And it had apparently left Timothy with a reputation. He was known as the one with a father who was a Greek. Can you see why it would be a problem if Paul went around with this famously uncircumcised Jewish guy. It would have given everybody the impression that Christians require Jews to become Gentiles. That this whole message about Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews, that the opposite was being taught to Jews, that you do have to become Gentiles. That it would be better if you weren't following Jewish custom. But Gentiles don't need to become Jews, and Jews don't need to become Gentiles. We believe that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so Paul strongly resists getting Gentiles circumcised. You can see that everywhere in his writings. They don't need to become Jews. And when he's traveling with Timothy, he gets him circumcised to avoid sending the opposite message, so that Timothy isn't a walking advert for the idea that Jews have to hide the fact they're circumcised or indeed avoid circumcision altogether. His point is to say, Jews and Gentiles, whoever you are, it's not about circumcision. Let's not make this an issue. It's about faith alone. And yet, depending on who he's talking about, it works out differently. It's expressed differently. A difference of expression. Luke is not an idiot. Our author here, when he places this straight after the chapter that says, you don't need to get circumcised, it's not that he's getting confused. He's showing that the same decision not to add anything to the gospel might be expressed differently depending on what your starting position is. That the same decision not to add anything to the gospel might look different in different circumstances. The root is clear, faith alone, but it's messy. I mentioned earlier that the longest walk that I'd been on was up to the top of Scarfell Pike. In fact, I actually took this walking companion. It's a great little companion. It gives a clear route, uh, some various directions in it. And it's very plain what it's telling you. What it isn't is a map. And so the route that I ended up taking was a little messy. In fact, if I'd paid more attention, I would have read this line. Abrupt changes in weather conditions or sudden mist can make it a difficult and confusing peak for the ill-prepared. I was ill-prepared. 
I, uh, I, I don't think I was wearing much waterproof, uh, waterproofing, and so when it poured with rain out of nowhere, I got drenched. When the mist appeared, I don't even know what I could have done to prepare for that, but I wasn't ready for it. And really, I did need a map to give me slightly more clarity on how I could have taken, uh, taken my journey. Even with a clear route, I found myself at various points getting quite lost. Uh, at one point, about eight hours into the walk, which tells you it really wasn't going very well, um, the sun was getting lower in the sky, and I could see lots of other people walking on a slightly different path. I mean, we were basically on the same route, but they were looking at me across the valley with slightly concerned expressions, and so I found myself navigating a ledge between a, a mountain and quite a drop on the other side. It is the closest, I think, I've ever got probably to dying, and certainly to needing to call out for mountain rescue. Not that I had any reception. <laughs> I'd seen the clear route. There was a clear direction. But it wasn't a map, it didn't tell me everything. There was some room for people to take slightly different routes. You could certainly say that my journey was messy. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that there are lots of different routes to get right with God. There is only one. That was the clear decision last week from the council. We will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Where God has been clear, we need to be clear that there's a right and a wrong route. And yet within the right route, things can end up working out differently. There'll be differences of opinion. Take Mark or don't take Mark. There'll be differences of expression. A circumcision or not circumcision. There's only one way to be saved, but within that, real life is messy. It's an important thing for Luke to tell us as these guys go out with the clear decision of the Jerusalem Council. And I think it's particularly important for us to hear here at the 6pm. Uh, lots of us here are quite young. I'll leave you to decide whether you'll include me in that. Um, lots of us taking early steps in our involvement in church, enjoying the privilege of serving in a big church, a church with remarkable unity of purpose. So many of us on the, the same page. I think it can leave us thinking that so long as we listen to the Bible, we'll agree on everything. But real life ministry is messy. Even when we agree on what God has said clearly, Sometimes working that out in practice will look different. Maybe you've started to spot some of the ways that can work out. Differences of opinion, for example. Within this room, we'll hold different views on baptism. As a church, we are happy to baptize the children of believers. But some of us will think that you need to be a, an adult believer in order to be baptized. Now, we're not talking about essentials here. We're not talking about salvation by faith plus baptism. If that was the issue we were talking about, we'd need to come down clear. But we do need to make a decision on how to do baptism, who we're going to baptize. And so as a church, we're going to decide one thing that we do. And as a broader church and collection of churches that we work with, things will be messy. People will hold different, different opinions. Or maybe instead it's about what sort of church leadership structure we should have. Some will believe a church needs to have Episcopalian leadership, that is having a bishop leading a diocese that is made up of a number of churches. Others prefer other models of church leadership. But actually, 
Again, we're not talking about something that is, um, that is essential to being saved. It's not something the Bible says much about. Christians who hold to the Bible and listen to it authoritatively will come to different conclusions on it. But we have to make a decision on how we'll do church leadership, what positions we have in the church. And so the growth of the church will include people who are listening to God, but come to different conclusions, and it will look messy. Differences of opinion or differences of expression. People who believe exactly the same things, but where it works out in different ways in different places. We believe the Bible to be the word of God. We have a clear conviction that God is speaking to us as we listen to the Bible. And here that means we do lots of things uh, to listen to the Bible being taught. We have sermons on a Sunday. We have Bible studies midweek. We have weekends away, which we were talking about earlier. Great things to get involved in. But there'll be other churches with exactly the same conviction, but which work out very differently. uh, Where that belief that the Bible is the word of God means that they'll have a sermon on a Sunday and then a discussion of that sermon as part of their small groups. That's not because people believe different things, it's expressing the same belief, but it's worked out differently. A clear conviction, a clear word from the Lord, and yet real life is messy. As we go through the Christian life, those, the number of those differences will multiply, and sometimes they'll involve us going slightly different routes. You end up going to Cyprus and I end up going to Syria. Actually, you might think that you've got the cushy side of that deal. I'm not sure. Maybe you prefer to go to Syria and I'll go to Cyprus. Every time Christian family go their separate ways, it's painful. And yet it happens. The church isn't one big happy family. It's much more like a normal family. The growth of the church is messy. And as we come to see that more and more clearly, I imagine that there'll be some of us who are inclined to think, well, Why bother getting involved in that project? Indeed, if you're not a Christian, why would you get involved at all? Well, because even if the growth of God's church is messy, it's also unstoppable. Point two on the handout, it's unstoppable. It's a lesson we've seen throughout the book of Acts, but I think we can see it again in these verses, can't we? I look at the very last verse of the passage, 16 verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. It's a description of growth in depth as the churches are strengthened in the faith, are strengthened, equipped, matured, but it's also a description of growth in breadth as it increases in numbers, as more people choose uh, to join the project. Even in the messiness of these verses, God is growing his church. Indeed, as, uh, as John Stott points out, this policy decision that they're taking from Jerusalem, wherever it goes, it strengthens believers. So back in 15 verse 32, on the other side of the page, 15 verse 32, uh, when they take this decision out, it encouraged and strengthened the brothers. Or 15 verse 41, as Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, the churches were strengthened. Again, at the end of our passage, the churches were strengthened in the faith, even in the messiness. God is building his church. And it's not just in spite of the mess. God even uses the mess. I think about how that disagreement between Paul and Barnabas worked out for good. 15 verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. 
But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas went back to the churches they'd established at the beginning of their journey, Cyprus, and we can assume strengthened the work there. While Paul started a new team and enlisted the help of this guy Silas and then recruited Timothy, two guys who actually ended up helping him write half of the letters in the New Testament. Their plan had been to go just as one team and revisit the churches, and now there are two teams working the Mediterranean. We need to remember that like the rest of Acts, this passage isn't prescriptive. It's not encouraging us to divide over things any more than it's telling us to circumcise everyone called Timothy. Thank goodness. It's actually painful, always painful, when Christians separate. You can feel it in Luke's narrative. He's not telling us to copy them. He's describing the nature of church growth, warts and all. The growth of the church is messy, but it's also unstoppable. God is building his church. In fact, think about the state of the church at the end of this section of Acts. When we started this series back in September, Acts chapter 9, the gospel was focused in Judea and Samaria, the bottom right-hand corner of that map. There were perhaps a couple of offshoots in further regions, uh, but Paul's, uh, Peter's journeys back then were between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And yet now, at the end of this series, there's a base for international mission up north in Syrian Antioch. And churches from around the Mediterranean area are receiving a third visit from Paul. And he's about to stretch the border of the church out west into Europe. The growth of the church it's messy, but God, God is making sure it grows. Can you picture me walking up Scarfell Pike, worried about this messy route that I've chosen to take? When I run into someone who's looking even more lost than I am, someone who's got no idea where they're going, doesn't even have a walker's companion, let alone a map, someone who I'd never have seen if I hadn't ended up walking this silly route but who I was able to take with me to safety. Can you picture that? I can't, because it didn't actually happen. <laughs> but if it did, can you imagine how good an illustration that would have been? <laughs> but that's the sort of idea of God using the mess for growth, for progress. And actually, I don't need to make up an illustration, because we've got it in the history of the church, haven't we? 2,000 years. Open any history book. Church growth has been messy. Differences of opinion, differences of expression, some abandoning the teaching of Jesus altogether. And yet, just like through this book of Acts, God's church has advanced. It's continued to be strengthened. More people have chosen to become Christians. Our series this term has been working out Jesus' promise from the beginning of the, of the book to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. And it's continuing still today. So let me ask you again, what do you think it's going to feel like to be part of church growth? What are you expecting for the road ahead? Let me suggest it'll be a bit like that journey up Scarfell Pike. Abrupt changes in weather conditions or sudden mist can make it difficult and confusing for the ill-prepared. Are you ready for it to be messy? But just in case you're thinking of giving up on the whole thing, remember that church growth is unstoppable. God will build his church. 
He won't necessarily build our church. There's no promises here that he's going to build your Christian union or St. Helen's Bishop's Gate or the Church of England. The University CU that I was part of 15 years ago has gone up and down since I was a part of it. There may not be a church family here in 100 years' time. But God will build his church despite the messiness, even through the messiness. Who knows, maybe instead of St. Helens, there'll be a couple of churches that arise in its wake, reaching the nations in London. And if you're holding off becoming a Christian because you see the messiness in church and you don't want to be a part of it, well, there's a sense in which messiness is built into our DNA. It's been part of church life since the start. And yet this is the family that will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's a family God has been growing for the last 2,000 years. And it's a family I'm thrilled to be a part of. Let me lead us all in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you that you are a God who is working out your marvellous plan to welcome the nations into your kingdom. And we praise you for giving us a clear word. I thank you for giving us the Bible and speaking so clearly to us. And we pray that even as we live in this world where the working out of your gospel purposes looks messy to us, we pray that we would be convinced that you are working out your good plan that the advance of the gospel is unstoppable. And so would each one of us commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone has said, hi, long-time listener, first-time questioner. Well, that's great. <laughs> um, it's a long question, but I think the, the basis of it is, um, should we think of ourselves as a church above borders, one that ideally puts nationality and languages aside, uh, and think of ourselves as being part of God's kingdom only? I think, in a sense, yes, in that I am a citizen of heaven first. doesn't mean I need to ignore the fact that I grew up in a particular culture. Um, Paul says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 7, to, to Jewish people, don't try and hide the marks of circumcision. Don't pretend that you're... Don't, don't try and seek change. Um, maybe that's more about don't try and become a Gentile. I think the reality is that we come from different nations, we'll speak different languages, but our identity is first and foremost as citizens of heaven. And so, yes, I think we shouldn't be dividing across national lines. Uh, we shouldn't be a church that identifies as a particular nation. It might be that in order to reach the nations, we have, a, say, a congregation that speaks Mandarin, which we do at two o'clock on a Sunday if you want to join there. I don't speak Mandarin, so I don't go there. I'd be welcome if I did speak Mandarin. It's not a Chinese church. It's just a congregation that speaks Mandarin. But I think we don't identify primarily by our, our nation. Now. We identify as um, people of Jesus' kingdom with all of the, the baggage that we've already got. Yeah, and like, I was really encouraged by, I think it was like way back at the beginning of the series, um, God is just impartial. So like we gospel is for everybody and uh when we're talking about it it doesn't matter who uh who the person is it's for everybody and um i think that's just encouraging us to to speak to whoever it is yeah, yeah. thank you there's an observation here that being at st helen's uh, friends move to other churches and places while sad in the short term it's great seeing how people go out and serve in so many different capacities that's definitely true isn't it in light of what we're seeing 
And you still get some of that pain of splitting. There's no disagreement there. There's, there's, the people will go, uh, lots of us won't be here in three or four years' time. And it's painful to, to part company. And yet the, the, the work that we're doing is trying to reach the world with Jesus' wonderful message. And so it's right that we end up going different ways. Can I ask you an outworking, I think, of what was said, uh, both of you? So how do we deal with the pain of the outworkings of differences of opinion within the church family? Uh, or how can we foster Christian unity in the face of differing opinions and expressions? Shall I start? Um, so I think one of the things to, to think about is what is Christian unity? Um, sometimes, sometimes people think unity is the only thing that matters. Uh, can't we just agree to disagree? And I think certainly... In all of the examples you see in Scripture, you've got to ask, what is it we need to agree on to be Christian? Uh, last week wasn't really an example of unity for unity's sake. It was an example of realizing what is essential to our Christian message and the need to turn to Jesus. Uh, so certainly Christian unity comes out of believing what Jesus has said. But I think sometimes we can start to add lots of other things into the mix and go, well, you've got to believe that, but also really you've got to do music the way we do it at St. Helens, or you've got to have Bible studies that run like RML, otherwise you're not really saved. Nobody would ever say that, but we can start to imply that anybody who's any distance from us, who thinks slightly differently from us on things that the Bible is silent on, or who works things out slightly different from us, we can start to end up being very divisive. And I think identifying the things that God has said and the things he's given us freedom on will take us a huge amount of distance towards actually being united with those that we genuinely are brothers and sisters with and realizing where we need to call people out. Last week, to the Jerusalem Council, people say, oh, it's an example of unity. Actually, it's an example of separating, of, of dividing when you need to. The conclusion of the council was some people are right and some people are wrong. But within all of those who are right, let's be united. We are brothers and sisters. Yeah, and I wonder if sometimes it's easy for like a disagreement to become a big, seem like a really big deal. Um, whereas like you're saying, it's, uh, you know, in the perspective of a fellow Christian um, that you're disagreeing with, although it's still painful and hard. Yeah. And sometimes that disagreement will mean you need to go a different route because you can't do two different things together. If you don't believe that you can baptize infants, you'll find it difficult to be part of a church where infants are baptized, so you might end up operating in two different uh, church contexts. And that's not because you're saying they're not believers. We're wonderful partners with other churches in London who believe differently from us on that. It's just saying that we need to operate differently. I mean, clearly it's painful. It was painful when Paul and Barnabas split, but Paul is still able to speak positively about Barnabas elsewhere. He speaks very positively about Mark, as we said, it's knowing the difference between saying, this is a difference of opinion, and this is something that God says is wrong, which is what we saw last week. You just start on this, Tim, I think, but can I just ask the question again, even though you parted to answer it, which is often we can come down hard on teaching from others, which we think is uh, wrong. Um, does that show we need to be more accepting of other churches and opinions or, or not? Again, I think last week says, sometimes you have to come down hard uh, last week, the conclusion was this teaching of the Pharisees, the idea in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, that you need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you have to come hard, down hard and say that is wrong. It sounds like it's from the Bible, 
But when you read the Bible, that's not what God is saying. Sometimes you have to call that out. And I think there isn't generosity towards a position that's actually quite dangerous there. Sometimes people will say things that contradict what God is saying, and we need to come down hard and say, no, that's actually dangerous. Um, Sometimes people say, you don't really need to change. Uh, You don't need to repent. You can just come to Jesus, and uh, he doesn't ask you to turn from your sin. Just carry on however you're living. And the Bible's very clear. You need to turn from your sin. You're saved by faith. You're not saved by how well you do. But real following of the Lord Jesus involves turning from my old way of living and living for him instead. And anybody who denies that is putting people in danger, and we want to come down hard. The problem is when we come down hard on everything, when we say that any difference of opinion is something that the Bible says nothing about, but we think differently, oh, well, in that case, we're going to have a big split and fight over this. And on that, I think we need the generosity to go, that's a difference of opinion. We're all listening carefully to the Bible, but we've come to different conclusions, and that's okay. Anything to say on that? Not to Great. Um, Tim, there's a couple of questions from last week, basically they're asking you to expand on uh, where does it say that it's okay not to eat blood now? Uh, a number of people referencing um, what God says to Noah in Genesis 9 about not eating blood. Why has that changed? Presumably okay to eat blood rather than okay not to eat blood. It is okay not to eat blood as well. Um, okay to... Sorry, yeah, I, I assume that's what the question is asking. I think the, the, there are various parts of the New Testament that talk about all foods being clean. And so those things that were unclean in the Old Testament um, as, as part of that covenant don't seem to be the case anymore. Um, it doesn't say explicitly it's okay to eat blood. And if your conscience is not okay with eating blood, do not eat blood. Uh, Romans 14 would tell you that. But if, you're, uh, if Jesus has declared all foods clean... I think the food laws no longer become a part of what is governing for Christians. You can eat black pudding. Uh, Similarly, what was the other thing we talked about? Strangled stuff, that's okay. Um, But where the rest of the New Testament makes very clear, what I really wanted to say was uh, the other two things, idolatry and sexual immorality, they are not take it or leave it stuff. The rest of the New Testament is very clear that we mustn't do those as Christians. Those are things we need to turn from. Yeah. Thank you. What are some practical tips for managing ministry or theological disagreements in a way that's loving and honouring to the Lord? Um, Anna, do you have any tips on doing that well? Um, probably not many good ones, but um, <laughs> I think maybe praying. I think there's a really good prayer in Philippians chapter 1, which talks about um, sort of asking for God's help to make the best decision. So sort of similar circumstance, so not like a right or wrong, but just what is most excellent, what is best. Um, so I think that kind of is a good starting point is praying for God to help you work out what is the best decision. Um, and praying with the person with whom I disagree, praying together that we would listen to God carefully, that we'd be able to, to chart the right course. I think it's a great thing to do. And take time, be patient. Um, if you're discussing stuff with a brother, treat them like a brother, not an enemy, that sort of thing. Thank you. That might be a good thing to continue talking about afterwards with those around us as well. Um, A couple of questions uh, about this evening. Is Paul's decision to circumcise Timothy a concession to the culture that risks Jews being confused about the gospel being faith alone? And a similar one, if I could ask at the same time. How is Timothy being circumcised for the sake of the Jews a good thing as opposed to being a man-pleasing, people-pleasing thing? I think this answers both questions, so you'll tell me if it, if it doesn't. Last week we were told, don't trouble the Gentiles, don't trouble the Jews. Uh, make sure that everybody knows it's by faith alone and you don't need something else added to it. 
And so Paul works hard to make sure that there's nothing in the way that they operate as Christians that gives people the impression you're saved by faith plus something else. So I don't think it's a, it's a concession to the culture. I don't think it's about being man-pleasing. It's about avoiding causing offense. So sometimes we've stopped serving pork at St. Helens for a period because we want to make it easier for people from a Muslim background to come and hear the gospel. That seems like a good way of making it easier. That's not kind of trying to be man-pleasing. It's, it's, just, um, it's just trying to make it easily accessible. Read 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about all the things that he's willing to give up in order to, uh, in order to reach people with the gospel. And for Timothy, that was his foreskin. Uh, yeah, thank you, Tim. That's great. Um, <laughs> now, this not, might not be a question that was um, actually sent in, but if we wanted to continue to discuss these things, and maybe we're hungry and we want some food, where, how might we go about doing that soon? <laughs> you should go up to After Eights. So After Eights is our um, evening meal that we have together over in St. Andrews. If you're not sure where that is, um, maybe find someone by the bookstore. I can stand there if you're not sure where that is. But it's a great chance to just have a bite to eat, get to know people, and just keep chatting about this stuff. Like We've heard loads of stuff from Max, um, loads of really encouraging stuff about the gospel going out. So, yeah, good place to chat more. And lastly, um, where else in the Bible does it say that the growth of the church is unstoppable? I feel like in today's passage, it was an example of how the difference in opinion ended up working to grow the church. But does it really prove that the growth is unstoppable? I find it very hard to pick one place because it is the testimony of the whole Bible. So start reading in Genesis 1 and you'll see that God's project to have himself known across the world started in the creation of humanity and he has worked throughout history to build to an international church. Ephesians 1 talks about God working in all things according to the purpose of his will which he's just told us by that point is having this whole uh, kingdom of people united under his son and when you get to the end of the Bible I was reading Revelation 7 this week and you get this picture of where we're all headed and it's very clearly the future I hope I'm not being annoying to whoever asked that question. You can grab me later if I've I've picked up your question wrong. I think the whole Bible says that God will grow his church. Um, If you want a pithy line on it, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will try to prevail against it. It will be messy in this world. But Jesus is building his church and nothing is going to stop him. And that's why we're still here 2,000 years later and why there will be people worshipping the Lord Jesus for all eternity, even if we're not here anymore. We'll be glorifying him in heaven. Great. Um, Thank you so much, guys. We're going to sing in a moment, so maybe uh, the music guys like to come up. Maybe Tim, let us in prayer before we do that. Father, we praise you that even in the messiness of this world, You are building your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you for promising us that glorious day in the future when all people will see your glory. And as we're about to sing, myriad, myriad voices sing and earth to heaven and heaven to earth will answer. Jesus, the saviour of the world is king. We pray that as we picture that in our song now and as we think about it in the week ahead, you would spur us on in our service of you and help us to do so with great joy and energy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.